When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Don't turn off, but today we're talking about politics. Yes, politics. Hello, and welcome to the podcast, Something Rhymes with Purple. With me, Susie Dent, and Giles Brandreth, who's sitting opposite me in my kitchen, which, as we've established in previous uh, previous episodes, is full of bananas and not much else, hence the echo. So forgive us for that. But I love a banana. You love a banana. That's and I told you last time we were together... When you said, what word would I have tattooed on my body if I was to have a tattoo? And I'm not planning to, but I'd have the word yeks because I discovered it when I used to play a lot of Scrabble and found it to be a very useful Scrabble word, Y-E-X. And I, you couldn't guess what it was. You thought no. when I gave you multiple choice, it was part of a horse's hoof. And I told you it's a kind of a hiccup, an old word for a hiccup. And you doubted that. But you've done your homework since. What is a yeks? Yeah, well, it is a hiccup. Although the first meaning was a sob or a gasp or a gulp. Oh. So it kind of evolved from there into um, a hiccup. goes back to our Germanic invaders and the German Gescon, I guess, which is old high German, meaning to yawn. So there you go. So it's like sternutation, which is also yawning. And how do you spell it? Y-E-X? Y-E-X, or originally it was Y-E-S-K, yesk. Well, I got one over on you last week with Yex, Mm. and I think you're going to get one over on me this week, because what I want to ask you is this. I've long told this story. Uh, As you know, I was a Member of Parliament uh, briefly in the 1990s, and I loved telling the story as a consequence of uh, the lines on the floor of the Chamber of the House of Commons. The two, when you're speaking in a debate, if you picture the House of Commons, the Chamber of the House of Commons, you will know that people are opposite one another. And if you've looked closely at the green carpet, you'll see there's a thin red line in front of each of the two front benches. Well, when I arrived in Parliament, it was explained to me that members of Parliament don't shake hands with one another. This is because the origin of chivalry you was the handshake came to show that you were friends. You didn't, you know, and because at the House of Commons we're all honourable members, we don't need to make that proof. So there are no handshakes, the House of Commons, and uh, no swords, no daggers, because we're all there as friends. And they take this very seriously. And in the Chamber of the House of Commons, there are these two thin red lines between the two front benches. And those two, and you mustn't step over the lines in a debate. And the two thin red lines are an exact distance apart. The distance is the distance of two outstretched arms and two full-length swords. So in the House of Commons, sword fighting is not allowed. Sword fighting is strictly taboo. Backstabbing, of course, is quite a different matter. Anyway, the (laughs) point is that those two thin red lines, I used to say you had to stay behind them or you'd be ruled out of order. That was the origin of the expression towing the line. That is what I thought. I hate being the party pooper. Everything I do, I'm the party pooper. And the one that comes along and says, pop to your balloon. I'm sorry about this. The OED would disagree a little bit and that they think it originated in the US. You know, so many things that we think of being quintessentially British end up being American, like stiff upper lip. 
was American in origin, believe it or not. I mean, honestly, you couldn't get more Stephen Fry, could you, than stiff up a lip. Um, Tow the line, it says US 1813, and it started off as towing the mark, and then towing the line 1834, all to do with being on a ship. Oh, actually, it's to stand in a row. I'm reading the OED here. Um, And then to present oneself in readiness for a race contest or undertaking. So that was the first. So actually to be at the starting line um, rather than sort of be behind, you know, a a line and then conform to the required standards. So it's kind of shifted over time. Is this one true in the bag? Because as you'll see, if you're standing as you come into the House of Commons, you'll see the speaker is on a dais at the other end. Mm -hmm. What you don't see is behind the speaker's chair is a a, a, literally a physical bag uh, that you can put petitions in. And the expression was putting things in the bag. It's in Mm. the bag meant I've delivered this petition to Parliament. It's in the bag. The bag does exist behind the speaker's chair. Is that the origin of the expression? It's in the bag. (laughs) Pause for effect. Pause for flinching on my part. According to my dictionary, yeah, um, it's a game bag. So it's a game. It's, it's like if you're out poaching or if you're um, officially shooting game, which I wouldn't ever recommend. You would put your booty in the bag in the game bag. Apparently, well, well that's a this. fine start to my week. Two of my favourite <laughs> no, stories from Parliament. Is, obviously, they've had then a, a wonderful life in the political sphere. So it's, that doesn't it doesn't discount them at all. It's just that they're origins might have been slightly different. Well, tell me about parliamentary terms, parliamentary language, stuff that really does genuinely have its origins in the world of politics and parliament. Okay, well, I'll start off with uh, Roman times um, and the word candidate. Uh, Candidate is a relative of a candida, which most people would think of when they think of thrush. Let's move on quickly. Um, Or being candid is white, basically. Candid is meant white. And it goes back to Roman wannabes for public office who would wear white, pristine white togas in order to symbolise their purity and integrity, which quite often wasn't the case. Amazing. Um, So they would swan around in white togas and they were the original white clad candidates. So a candidate is a white-clad person who is purer than pure, literally whiter than white. That is amusing. I remember Martin Bell, wasn't he? He had had the white suit. He was. He stood as an independent uh, in the 1997 election against uh, Neil Hamilton. That's right. Because there had been allegations made uh, of sleaze against Neil Hamilton. that's right. It was the decade of sleaze. Uh, And that was, oh, yes, and he was elected. Mm. And I think then even possibly re-elected the man in the white suit. That's Mm. why he wore the white suit. I don't know if that's why he wore it, but it was a nice link. Well, it was his, like I used to have colourful jumpers, Martin Bell had white suits. But isn't that amusing? They're purer than pure. Look at the candidates now for anything. Well, anyway, on we go. So that's the original <laughs> okay, candidate. So Give me another one. This is interesting. And then in Roman times, they would walk about in order to canvass their votes. And the um, Latin for walking about was ambire. It's linked to ambulare with the idea of ambulance being ambulant. Uh, it's linked to ambient. There's so many words in English. Anyway, they would walk about canvassing their votes and they were ambitious. Um, so ambition goes back to those Roman candidates who walked around in search of votes from the I'm slack-mouthed. The origin of the word ambition relates to politics, the candidates amb- ambulating, yes, showing ambulating. their ambition. Yes. 
That's where it all began. Yes. Oh, Boris, there's nothing new. Because hmm. he might have known this, because I think he's a bit of a classicist. He's also a throttle bottom, which is Please. another great political epithet that I Please. love. That's a bit personal. I, a think, I do bottom. think that Boris is a bit of a throttle bottom, um, if he'll forgive me. A throttle bottom is a bumbling, slightly inept person in public office. Snollygoster. Forgive me, what is the origin of throttle bottom? Throttle Bottom um, was, it's a very good question. It's the name of a character. Um, is it a Victorian novel of some kind? Is it a Dickens character? It's not Dickens. I'm looking at Mr. Throttle Bottom. I'm going my search history in this. Uh, it's The Book of The I Sing by George Kaufman. Kaufman. Oh. And Mr. Alexander Throttlebottom runs for Vice President of the United States, and I imagine he was rather inept. George S. Kaufman was a brilliant American humorist who wrote movies and plays. Hmm. Uh, I happen to know that, so I'm throwing it in. And he they created did. Mr. Throttlebottom. He did. What was the other one you mentioned? I think you have heard you say this before. Snollygoster. I've definitely, definitely what, what's mentioned not, What's a Snollygoster? Snollygoster is an entirely corrupt politician. Ah, well, we don't know any of those. So... We don't know any of those. It goes back to uh, an old US word, Snallygaster, who was a mythical monster that would eat children and a bit like Bugbear, which was a, a similar thing. Parents would use the presence or the or the imminent presence of the Bugbear or the Snallygaster as a warning to their kids. If they didn't do what they were told, they would be eaten by the Snallygaster. Any, any more from Rome, from ancient Rome political terms? Um... Got me there. Anything more from the world of Parliament before we have uh, our little ad break? Um, I've got loads. Here. Oh yes, go give us some. Well, one of the things I really don't like are the um, the euphemisms, the political euphemisms. I think we're all, you know, we're, we're all at one in that. So things are. Um, we don't talk about public spending anymore. We talk about public investment. Do you think? Um, and then wasn't it Gordon Brown who spoke of post neoclassical endogenous growth theory? What did he Remember mean? That? I don't think anyone knows. Really just that the government would make a difference to the economy. I think that was that was the point. Interestingly, Gordon Brown is more interested in words and language than you would imagine. People find this hard to believe. He's very eloquent. He's not only eloquent, he loves poetry. He once ah. invited me to an evening of poetry readings in Downing Street. Amazing. Well, it did was quite amazing. I went along and there he was with a lot of poets. He got up and he read some poetry himself. It was quite... Fantastic. Unexpected. And it was quite interesting to me. I, I was, it was, an election was coming. And a, a few weeks later, I was in Stratford-upon-Avon. And there was Gordon Brown and his wife and children. They were going to a play. And there were some people in the cafe next to me saying, oh, look at him. He's just tr trying to show he's got a family. He's just, and I thought, this poor man, he's obviously just come. Because I know, I happen to know he likes Shakespeare. He's taking his family to the theatre. And the people are sneering at him, thinking he's doing it for advantage. Yeah. It's, no. it's a rotten <laughs> we are, business. We are all quite cynical. About politicians, aren't we? Um, there was a lovely article written in the um, Telegraph a few years ago about how um, the PM, you'll know this, right? so they have their own political version of the A-team, really, and they're known as the Berserkers. Have you heard this? No, not in my day. We had no berserkers in my day. And their job is to Few kind works, of eat the people matter. in Parliament that issue roars of sport ah. uh, when they're speaking or, or kind of snarls at the opposition. Yes. And berserker goes back to um, Viking warriors who would put on a, a berserk, which was a bearskin coat, and then whip themselves up into some kind of amazing frenzy inspired by the spirit of the bear whose skin they had 
dawn, they had donned, um, and then go into kind of berserker rage and uh, and be invincible, pretty much. Let me. This is interesting. A prime minister's questions. There's always a lot of noise, a lot of rah rah, uh, because and some of it is indeed indeed encouraged. Um, the A team that you mentioned, the whips who are in charge of kind of parliamentary business and ensuring that the votes go through they may have an A-team of backbenchers who are going to support the government and who do go in and cheer. But the reason the cheering is important, it's not for the general public, it's for the morale within the place. Because having been there as a member of parliament, if your man or woman gets up and there's silence, it's quite alarming and sort of energy saps out of the building and you feel, the poor person is left there alone. So the noise is made. The rest of us have to put up with that. Yeah, you do. You but have the to re- expose yourself at some point. But this is the reason I'm explaining it okay, to you. Okay, sorry. Is, <laughs> no, <laughs> is the reason it happens is that when it doesn't happen, something is amiss. And you may have seen, for example, during the last days of Mrs May's premiership, there were fewer and fewer people on her benches in the House of Commons. There was less and less noise. Mm. And it's quite debilitating if you are the speaker. So that's one of the reasons it goes on. It's for, because because the authority... It's so raw, though. Yes, but the authority of the leader begins in the chamber of the House of Commons. Mm. So unless whoever the leader of the opposition is, or at the moment Jeremy Corbyn, unless he has behind him troops who are supporting him, the fact that he doesn't becomes evident week in, week out. And that is bad for his morale and bad for the morale of the troops around him. So he ensures that he has supported people near him and people who are, you're telling me, used to be called berserkers. It's not a phrase I've heard. When when okay. were people called berserkers? I think berserkers? this is quite recently. Um so well, maybe they just maybe, knew themselves as the berserkers. Oh, and also it may be since my time because, you know. And then there's the Q, the Q team that meet before yeah. PMQ. The, the, yes, the, the, PMQs, yes. I should say. Yeah. The, the A team is a is a group of backbenchers who basically are there to be supportive of the government. Uh, the Q team are the people who are there to put helpful questions. And so, to agree the absolute lexicon for the day, as far as I can work out. So they, you know, they absolutely determine which words should be yes. strong and stable, strong so, and stable. So the say. line, the line that is going to be taken, so that people are being consistent. Yeah, that's yeah. the Q team. Yeah. Um, and then there's all this sort of um I find slightly ridiculous, you know, will the minister join me in congratulating and does my right honourable friend agree with me? I just find those formulations so archaic now. Yes, maybe you're right. I mean, the reason they were done originally was to distance the person. Well, first of all, to remind you where the person came from. Yeah. So it's, you know, will the member for so-and-so, it's to remind you they are there as representing where they come from. And also so that you're not actually talking about the individual as a, as an individual, you're not allowed to use their names. You're, you are the right honourable member, my right honourable friend, if it's on the same side. Um, you're only a right honourable if you're a privy councillor. If you're an ordinary member of parliament, you are the honourable member. And the idea was, okay, is... Okay, I'm going to ask what the in, difference is. In, instead of shouting abuse at one another by having to refer to the leader of the opposition as, you know, the right honourable gentleman, mm. it, it, it sort of diffuses that. It's supposed to put a, a slight barrier and make people behave better. That's the origin of it. Um, oh, that's very interesting. There certainly was in my day quite a collegiate atmosphere between the parties mm. um, because people do actually end up working quite well together. And what about whip? Whip, whip that began with the whipper in, didn't yeah. it? It's a hunting um, term. It's a hunting term. Yeah. I was a government whip. Essentially, the, the whips are both the parliamentary police, the, the SS of parliament, but they also are the human resources arm. Every MP 
has a whip. There are about 13, 14 whips on each side. And the whip is the person who is responsible for basically ensuring that government's business goes through. Each whip will have 20 or 30 MPs in his or her, you know, on their list, on their card. And the idea is that you should know everything that that person is thinking and feeling and wanting so that you can ensure that they do support the government or the opposition or whatever party's label they were elected on. That's the role of the whips. And it's a hunting term. The, the, the whipper in was the person who got the hounds whipped in to follow the, the scent. And it's kind of all linked to, to whip round as well. It goes oh. back to those um, parliamentary whips who would... Um, yes, take the figurative whip and get people sort of together, and then it was trans, you know, transferred over to monies. Yes. Um, I mean, do you remember the series House of Cards? I do. With the chief whip there, talk to the camera, who's sort of played rather like a Richard III Machiavellian figure. That was slightly exaggerated, I think. On the whole, be- people as whips, they're perceived as being rather sinister figures who are doing a lot of arm twisting, forcing people to vote. Mm. Um, there's sometimes is an element of that. But on the whole, the most effective whips are the ones who do it with um, kindness. Integrity. With, well, with integrity, actually understanding your person, okay. making them know that you understand what they're about. Mm. Um, because I know, it's, we have to say, and I, I'm guilty of this too, because I tweet all sorts of odious terms for politicians, of which fart catcher might be one of my favourites. Please. Fart catcher What's is a somebody, fart catcher? it used to be a lackey or a valet who would follow so closely in his master's footsteps that well, you can guess the rest. Oh, so very obsequious. I've I spent my life as a fart catcher. I mean, at school. <laughs> brand with fart no, catcher. No, but in a way, I know that's true. I understand. I was the person who sat in the middle of the front row at school. You know, teacher's pet, yes, as it were. Yes. And I suppose when I got to Parliament, I thought, well, uh, I, I didn't mind in a way because I thought, well, I've been elected, you know, on this, wearing this rosette. Yeah. I supported the manifesto. I'm quite happy to go along with it. And uh, when a government has a large majority, you can defy the whips. It's amusing with Jeremy Corbyn, now the leader of the opposition, who I knew quite well when I was an MP. Uh, Jeremy, in those days, he never listened to his whips. He rebelled literally hundreds of times. Now, of course, he's the leader of the opposition. He has quite an active whips department, and he is trying to ensure that his whips make sure that his MPs do his bidding. He used to be a rebel himself. Now he raises an eyebrow, if Mm. not much more, More to the rebels in his own ranks. Yes. Um, But, yes, it has to be said that, that politicians have had a really hard rap over the centuries and that, you know, recent rhetoric has got incredibly cutthroat and bloodthirsty in a way that's actually been thought to incite violence in some way. So linguistically, people have to be really careful, I think, when it comes to politicians. We don't want any violence inside it here. In fact, I think it's time for a break. Well, yes, get too and then we away. want to speak more Buncombe because I want to tell you where Buncombe came from. Oh, a break and then Buncombe. Depending on the ad, it could be Buncombe and then Buncombe. <laughs> Do you ever wonder how celebrities order food? Like, is Sarah Paulson a Diet Coke or a regular Coke girlie? <laughs> Some peasant Coke? No. Or how does Sofia Vergara order a pizza? No, no, no tomatoes. I cannot eat tomatoes. No tomatoes? Yes. Are you killed mushrooms? Not really. Okay. <laughs> if these are the details you need, and I know you do, I have the podcast for you. I'm Jesse Tyler Ferguson, and on my podcast, Dinners on Me, I take some notable friends of mine out to dinners in Los Angeles and New York City. Listen wherever you get your podcasts. That thing was delicious. Susie. 
before you tell me about Buncombe, mm. I know you're not sleeping enough. Mm. I've devised a new game for getting to sleep, and this really works. I take a letter of the alphabet that has to be a word. Okay. A letter of the alphabet, you take a second letter, then a third letter, then a fourth letter. Each time, it's got to be a real word. And I began last night with the letter A. Mm-hmm. I added an N, the yeah, indefinite article, A-N. Then A-N-G, there's such a word. It's the hairy, yes, it's the hairy part of an ear of barley. Mm-hmm. Then anger, A-N-G-E, on its own, mm-hmm. which is it's trouble, affliction, anguish. It's a version of it. Remember, you have the OED. I have an assortment of Scrabble I dictionaries. I don't want to start reading yeah. the OED at midnight. Angel. Hooked on it as I am. Angel. Yes. Angeli, A-N-G-E-L-I. Angelica. Oh, no, it's one letter, we isn't it? We haven't got Angelic. there yet. Angeli is okay. It's a town in Finland. What were you offering then? Angelic. Angelic, exactly. Angelica. Angelica is an aromatic plant used in cooking. Angelical. Uh, exactly. You're getting there. She's beginning to doze off, having the nature of an angel. That's hard. The next one. Mm, I can think of the adverb, but not one letter. Okay, what would it be? Angelicals. Nuns of the order, and I'm afraid it's an extinct order now, but it was founded in Milan in 1530. Nice. By this point, you're asleep. By this point, I am asleep. It's just a fun game to play. Yeah. Building with words. The point is, words and language do everything. A lot of what I say is buncombe. What's the origin of buncombe? Buncombe. So many words in the political lexicon for political humbug. Flap doodle is one. You can be a flap doodler. Um, and a bunker, a flummery is another one. And Buncombe is another. Buncombe is the name of a county in North Carolina in the US. Um, and it was in the 16th Congress when, um, near the close of the debate about slave labour, a particular debate, the member for Buncombe County, rose to speak. The House was really impatient just to get to the end and settle this once and for all. But he spoke and he spoke and he spoke and he spoke. And people gathered around him begging him to stop. And he said, no, I am doing this for Buncombe County. And uh, ever since, Buncombe has become a word for a really unnecessarily, tediously long and utterly meaningless That's speech. That's brilliant. Like a filibuster. It's the same sort of thing as Buncombe. Um, yeah, well, the filibusters were, were pirates, weren't they? they oh, were, were they? Well, yes. When you're filibustering, when you're filibustering, you're on your feet, and it, you may be talking bunkum, but you're keeping the thing going. Uh, and this used to be done in my day. One would do it. One would organise a filibuster in Parliament. Let's say a vote was expected at 10 o'clock at night. Uh, you had to keep going at 10 o'clock at night because your people weren't necessarily back from supper oh, right. until 10 o'clock. So it's filling. So somebody had to fill out the time and you would do it by filibuster. But you've been quite obstructive, I guess, aren't you? Well, you're just keeping the thing going so that it doesn't collapse. The opposition are wanting to call a vote because they've got their people there early and you can only talk in a way that's relevant to the matter in hand or the speaker should stop you. So a skillful filibuster is filling the air with sound that is relevant not simply talking bunkum. Oh. What's the origin of Well, it is from a Dutch word for a freebooter because they were pirate adventurers, the first filibusters, who pillaged Spanish colonies in the West Indies. Um, and from there, anybody who's a filibuster in their action is sort of engaged in unauthorised action, um, first of all against states, and then I guess maybe they're just sort of filling in an unauthorised or unofficial way. Yeah, interesting. Mm, long, long journey, that one. That has come a long journey, mm. filibuster.
We haven't talked about the Brexican either, have we? Oh, 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 people tune in to Something Runs With Purple to get away from Brexit. Sorry. Uh, it's made well, we the whole nation unhappy for this. three years. But tell me, the origin of the word Brexit, who came up with it first? Um, I actually don't know if we know the exact origin, the exact person. There are people who make claims. It's yeah. not the first version of it. There was an earlier version, wasn't there? People Brexit. talked about Greece. Brexit, yes. It was a riff on... The European Union. Yeah. And so Grexit became popular. Brexit for lexicographers became famous because nobody had a definition for it. And Theresa May obviously just kept saying Brexit is Brexit. It's like, well, yes, then what, what is Brexit? But it um, came about 2012, before. according to this, wow. in a blog, uh, stumbling towards the Brexit. We've been That's doing that ever four since. years before we got round to the referendum. Brexit was already part of the lexicon. Yeah. Yeah. Brexit. Um, but, I know we've talked about portmanteau words. It's a portmanteau words, oh two goodness. different words brought together. But has it not spawned its own Brexican? Brexcosis, which is a horrible one. What's that? Despair amongst remoners. Um, Brex through, Brexplosion. Oh, it's awful. Bregret um, for people who are feeling maybe they voted the wrong way. Yes. I'm suffering terrible regret. Also, the backstop. I mean, I know that that's an old term, isn't it, from from uh, baseball or something like that? Mm. It's an American sporting term. Mm-hmm. Nobody understands it. The Irish backstop, they keep repeating the Irish. They've got no idea what they're talking about. No, that's just quite interesting. I have to say I'm one of them as well, but you, you would hope is, that our politicians would know. No. Do you know that's the one thing I discovered when I was in politics? Cricket. Nobody knows anything. Nobody it's the same knows. as a long stop, stop in cricket, sorry. A backstop is the same as a long stop? Yeah. It would have yeah, been easier. American, but called it the the Irish long stop. That's what I do now. It's we've abandoned the backstop. We are now aiming for the Irish long stop, part of the great tradition. It's an American phrase, is it? It is. Excellent. It is, it is. Um, I've got a quote from you, actually, which I liked, mm. uh, which relates to um, your uh, your weekly surgeries, I guess, and how difficult they must have been and trying sometimes, this however is when, rewarding. However, this is when... Constituents, the one thing to be said in favour of the British system is that every MP has a constituency and usually once a week, certainly once a fortnight, regularly, they let members of, you know, people who, you know, their voters, the electorate, come and meet them to share their problems. Mm. Your quote that I love is, happiness is the constituency in the rear view mirror. <laughs> Are you embarrassed I said, about I that? I said that to you privately, darling. <laughs> I didn't expect that to end up in your dictionary of quotations. Oh, but sometimes, I think honestly, it's in your own dictionary. Oh, no, sometimes, honestly. I mean, when the election came round that I lost my seat, I mean, by then I, I knew I had contempt for my constituents. But to find that the feeling was entirely mutual, that was the shock to the system. Oh. There's a lovely, lovely quote from um, someone called Dick Tuck, who competed in the California. You have to be careful. Say that carefully. <laughs> and, oh, dear, never mind Jeremy Hunt. Now please welcome Dick Tuck. After being defeated in the California state primary, he said, except six words of pain, the people have spoken, the bastards, well, the bastards. Is that the origin of that? Because it's a line a lot of people use. Oh, is it? I've not not heard it. Yeah, apparently so. Apparently so. What was he called again? Dick Dick Tuck. I love it. Dick Tuck. I love it. (laughs) Okay. Now. Lots of people have been in touch. They tweet us individually because we both have Twitter handles. I'm Giles B1, G-Y-L-E-S-B1, and people send in questions. Um, and also people email us at purple, P-U-R-P-L-E, at something else, something spelt without a G, dot com. And Susie, mm-hmm. I have to say something. My wife has started listening 
to our podcast just to keep an eye on me. Mm-hmm. And she said, the other day, you described the at symbol when giving the address as an ampersand. Don't you know anything? Susie was too polite to correct you. An ampersand is an abbreviation for the word and. Mm. It's a little symbol. Mm. looks a bit like a sort of distorted eight. Mm. Think M and S, that kind of thing. That's the, the ampersand. The ampersand between the M and the S. Yes. The, is there a word for the at sign, as in purple at something else? Yes. Oh, what is that word? The at sign. Ah, the at symbol. Ah, ah. I don't think we have one. Really? No. It's called the at sign. The at symbol. Yes. So if you want to get in touch with us, it's purple at something else.com. Isn't that interesting? People know, though I've said at, they're not going to write at, are they? They're not. I've said purple at something else, and people know it's that symbol. Anyway, what's somebody written to us about this week? Craig Lumsden um, has written in to say, there's an interesting thing I heard recently about paying through the nose. Um, in olden times, if you were due money, the law enforcers would take an axe to one's nose. Is this true? Um Paying through the nose is to pay an exorbitant price for something. It it does have that story attached to it that um, in the days after the the Danish invasion of Britain, so think Vikings, um, they were particularly strict with their tax laws and um, the harsh punishment, punishment if anybody failed to pay, was the nose tax. The debtor had his nose slit open, apparently. Not true, we think, we think, we think. Um, And it was quite fascinating because it might might possibly go back to the Greek rhinos, meaning nose. Um, and oh, as in rhinoceros? It's as got in that... rhinoceros, Gosh. exactly. Rhinos um, is a nose. And rhino, as we've established in one of our previous, previous programmes, was slang for money. So it's possibly a play on words for that. But um, who knows? It came in, in the 18th, 17th century, I think. And I think it just simply means it might cause you a nosebleed if you have to pay it. Paying through the nose. Yes. But thanks for the question, Craig. Very good. Now, look, um, have you got a trio of fun words for us this week? Um, I do. I love this trio of words. My challenge is to remember them. Okay. I think you might remember this. What we ought to have is a website where we can put all these words up so people Mm. can remember them. It's true. Well, we can tweet them. We can tweet them. Okay. Um, Does the canteen in the House of Commons do good sausages? We call it the tea room. It's the okay. members' tea room. The members' tea room, members' dining room. And yes, bangers and mash, sausages are there. Okay. I have an old word for sausages, um, and they're forever known um, as this in my house, bags of mystery. This is what they were called because nobody completely knew what was in them. Bags of mystery. I love Isn't it. Isn't that great? I think that's true of many a modern sausage. I think that's very true too. Bags of mystery. Yeah. You and I are veggies, aren't we? We're we both are. vegetarians. We are. We're not vegans, either of us. Mm, I'm oh, kind you? of heading in that direction, but I've not completely gone that direction because I'm finding protein quite hard. But anyway, that's another whole other subject. But yeah, I'm, I'm kind of between vegetarianism and veganism. And we do have vegetarian sausages, which can be quite nice. Yes. And they are all bags of mystery to me because I've got no idea. I'm taking it on trust. I'll have some veggie sausages, please. What what are they putting in there? Mushroom protein, aren't they? Oh, are they? Is that what corn is? Is corn? Corn, corn is, yeah. Is, that's mushroom it's protein. some sort of... Fungi. Is that a commercial name, Corn? Is it just it a, is, yeah, it's trademark, just yeah. a trademark name? Yeah. yeah. Um, okay, so bags of mystery. And my second one, uh, forgive me, listeners, if I have mentioned this one before, but it's possibly my favourite discovery from the last three years. Um, in the OED, there's a whole section on trumping, as you would imagine. Uh, to trumping cards comes from triumph. To trump is to break wind, as we know. But trumperiness, 
from the 19th century, it describes something that is showy and flashy, but ultimately utterly worthless. Isn't that brilliant? Don't need to say anything else to that one. Um, And the third one, closely linked actually, but can equally be applied to British politics as to US politics, is clusterfuck. A deliberately mishandled situation or undertaking. It's an omni-shambles, but I prefer clusterfuck. An omni-shambles is a clusterfuck. Yeah, and it's in the dictionary. A clusterfuck. If lots of things have been fucked up, it's a clusterfuck. It's a total clusterfuck. So a collective noun, because we were talking about those the other day, the collective noun for... for politicians political is a clusterfuck. <laughs> okay, that, yes, the collective noun for politicians these days is a clusterfuck there of we politicians. Go. There we go. You heard it first on Something Rhymes With Purple. Uh, give us a review, rate us, help us spread the word. If you've got a question you'd like us to answer or you just like to get in touch, you can also email us at purple at somethingelse.com. Something Rhymes with Purple is a Something Else production produced by Paul Smith with additional production from Russell Finch, Lawrence Bassett, Steve Ackerman and Gully. I am peckish. Have you got any bags of mystery in the fridge? (laughs) 